Since 1992, Don Brightup has steered his band Monkey House on a path of musical progress. In 2012, when we first connected with Don, the band had just released their third album, Headquarters, which caught the attention of all of us here at Inside Music Cast, most notably how their songs contained a heavy melodic approach reminiscent of Steely Dan. The band's latest album, Left, which will be released on June 3rd, picks up where Headquarters left off and includes contributions from some incredibly talented guest musicians, including Elliot Randall, Drew Zing, Michael Linhart, Jay Graydon, Kim Mitchell, and Lucy Woodward. Left contains brilliantly crafted songs that may be the band's finest collection to date. In fact, during our chat with Don today, you'll hear the world premiere of a few songs from the album. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Don Brida. Hey Don, welcome back to the show. Guys, it's been too long. <laughs> yeah, it's it been about been four years. And, uh, you know, of course, yeah. in the meantime, uh, after the last time that we interviewed you, which was about 2012 when Headquarters mm-hmm. uh, was released, uh, you have since become an Inside Music Cast correspondent. And we want right. to, of course, thank you for all the work you've done with us and all the, all the music knowledge you've shed to all of our listeners. So we appreciate that. Oh, that's my pleasure. And uh, I guess I didn't realize when you interviewed me in 2012, you were actually um, subconsciously converting me and including <laughs> me to, onto the team. Yeah, it was a ploy. Just yeah, it was a ploy. It's a yeah. nasty, nasty ploy. It's like your your new album is, is doing the same thing to us. It's, I know. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's, I filled it full of uh, earworms. <laughs> We're going to talk more about the new Monkey House album left here in just a bit, but I want to roll back time here a little bit and chat about what you've been up to since the uh, release of your last Monkey House album, uh, which was Headquarters back in 2012. And I do want to start with uh, a little bit of Brass Transit. I think it was last year that you were you guys were pretty busy and out on the road uh, quite a bit. And uh, what's the latest with Brass Transit? Uh, well, we're still busy. Um, the latest wrinkle, uh, well, I guess uh, since I talked to you guys, we, we made a Brass Transit album. Um, where we kind of took the Chicago sound and uh, grafted it onto some other tunes from that era. The idea was we would take some classic 70s stuff and uh, record it as if Chicago had done it originally. Right. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was sort of fun. And then um, the the most recent uh, thing, I guess, with Brass Transit is that we've uh, gotten our entire uh, show together for the eight-piece band plus symphony orchestra. Wow. Um, and we've uh, made a video, you know, a serious video with a five-camera shoot and all this stuff mm-hmm. um, to try and get uh, more work uh, playing with orchestras because it's uh, just such a huge sound. It's a, it's a great kind of extra layer to the show. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, another sort of life change that happened uh, since we spoke in 2012, yeah, uh, is your move from Toronto to L.A. And um, tell us a little bit about this move. How is this panning out for you? I mean, a lot of uh, life has sort of changed for you, hasn't it? It is. It's definitely a new chapter. Um, you know, I had thought for years that I might end up here for mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of reasons. You know, some of the musical, uh, so much of the music that has uh, defined me and influenced me originated here in L.A. All right. Um, to say nothing of the fact that I hate shoveling snow. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, and and uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, was living out here, and um, yeah, I was and still am doing a lot of TV music. And so it just made sense for, for a bunch of reasons, and uh, my kids were off to college, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Well, good for you. So the, the TV music that you're working on, that's a lot of animation, is that correct? You still, are it you is, st- yeah, yeah, animation... Uh, 
reality shows. Uh, I'm, I actually have a little feature going on right now. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's enough to resemble a career. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, now that you're in L.A., you know, your, your, your heart and your roots are still back in Toronto that you're home. But do you still find yourself traveling back there often? Or are you able to continue relationships and work with your, you know, your Toronto connections from your digs out there in L.A.? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, partially because uh, a lot of my family still lives back in Toronto. I'm, I'm there a lot. And uh, yeah. we made this uh, Monkey House album mostly in Toronto, although there was additional recording in London, New York, San Francisco, uh, L.A., all over the place. Right. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly back there enough um, because of various music projects and, and other reasons that I'm kind of have one foot in both places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about this project that you've been uh, involved with uh, recently? It's called True North, and uh, it's, it's uh, the Canadian songbook. And so what's your involvement in it? Can you a little explain a little bit about the project uh, and uh, how it's coming together? Well, uh, that's a, a project I'm producing mm-hmm. uh, for a singer in Canada named uh, Eleanor McCain. Right. And... Uh, her idea was uh, Canada has the, their 150th birthday coming up next year. She wanted to peg something to that. And uh, once she started thinking about this thing, it just became a mammoth project. Mm-hmm. And what it is now is 33 songs written by Canadians from, I guess, the 20s to the present. All um, done up with a sort of a core rhythm section, which happens to be the same rhythm section that constitutes Monkey House, mm-hmm. um, okay. but then going coast to coast and recording larger arrangements on top of that with uh, 10 different orchestras, wow. <laughs> and then bringing in a whole series of uh, kind of guest soloists and guest vocalists and that kind of thing wow. on top of it. Uh, so, I mean, the timeline and the number of people involved really dwarfs anything I've done uh, production-wise before, wow. and we don't expect to be finished probably until uh, this time next year. Holy cow. I would think, yeah. So uh, we've recorded nine out of the ten orchestras, so I've got a few miles on me this year. We've <laughs> all the way from uh, Vancouver out to Newfoundland. Yeah, I've, I've been tracking you on Facebook, and I, I, I see your travels, and it's like, what is he doing? He's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out there collecting air miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So, I mean, is the intention, the idea to eventually release a, a CD, or will there be a video involved? I mean, what's what's the uh, what would be the final well, product? Well, uh, that's, that's a fair question. Uh, there, there's been a professional camera crew following us around the whole way, uh, mm. filming the orchestra sessions, the... Uh, the basic tracks. Um, they've filmed Eleanor singing. They've interviewed a lot of people involved in the project. So yeah. there may be a a DVD or even a TV special around it by the time we're done. Uh, but the the core thing that will be for sale is uh, a double CD accompanied by a book uh, featuring interviews with the writers and a lot of uh, photography, sort of landscape photography mm-hmm. in Canada. Very, Very nice. cool. Very cool. That sounds nice. Well, uh, the main reason we're here today is, uh, of course, we want to talk about the uh, new Monkey House project, which is titled Left, which is due out June 3rd. And, uh, you know, as busy as you always seem to be, uh, where did you even find the time to write, record, and produce this project? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, like you said, you're always hopping around traveling. You've got music uh, that you're working on for television. And, and how did you get this squeezed in? 
Well, you know, it's funny. It, it actually has to do with the move to L.A. because I, I moved out here, um, got onto my girlfriend's schedule. Uh, mm-hmm. She gets up really early. She's a teacher. Okay. And because I was still kind of uh, in my bones on East Coast time, there was this kind of interval every morning um, where nothing much was cooking out here on the West Coast yet other than... Uh, you know, maniacs out walking their dog before the sun comes up and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but it was definitely in this little magic time when the phone hasn't started ringing yet and that right. kind of thing. And uh, I just set aside that chunk every morning, probably for about the first year I was here, to just sit and play and sing and develop ideas that had been sort of scrawled on a piece of paper or hastily sung into my phone in the car and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, knowing that, you know, within a couple of years, I would probably be going back into the studio. And um, I had set the bar relatively high with the last record, and I wanted to make sure that, that I was choosing from a really good batch of songs this time around. You know, I, I read something, it might have been on Facebook, uh, a comment that you made about... Um some of the, yeah, I guess you were traveling, and all your travels from, uh, maybe it was your move from uh, Toronto to L.A., and you were talking about, you know, an eight-hour stretch of, you know, the flattest land in the in the country or something like that that you were traveling across. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. a lot of thoughts uh, came to you during, you know, that, that time you were traveling. So were those thoughts about songs that we're now hearing on the, the left album? Yes, uh, in, in large part they were. Uh, and it's true that uh, you know, there's some very flat parts when you're uh, driving westward across this continent, <laughs> sure. and uh, it was kind of like the creativity varied in inverse proportion to the number of bumps on the horizon. So when I was driving through, uh, you know, Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico, um, I was all frantically making voice memos and scrawling things down on the passenger seat on... on uh, gum wrappers and uh, <laughs> gas receipts and, and, and so stuff. Done, and so yeah. I, I had this little bag full of very raw material by the time I got here. Uh, it took me four and a half days or something to drive out. The remnant of Melody's bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there are actually still things in there that I'm, every once in a while I'll go in there and go, oh, I haven't developed that yet. Maybe there's a song. Yeah. You know, were all the songs that were created, uh, you know, for this album, were they all written after headquarters, or were any of them, uh, or are they all fresh? Uh, any, any of those that uh, you pulled out of a hat? I think that if you went in forensically, mm-hmm. you might find uh, just sort of the beginning, the beginnings of a couple of yeah. these songs. Uh, the one exception to that, that was a full-blown song, um, long before headquarters, actually, is the last song on the album, "The Art of Starting Over," right. That's which I had written track. with uh, Julie. And um, I had shortlisted that for for headquarters and maybe even uh, the album before that. And uh, Julie had it on a short list for a couple of her records too. And but I hadn't quite gotten the arrangement uh, to where it felt good to me. And finally, that happened this time. Wow! It's uh... and uh, you know, as you guys know, having heard the record now, it ended up with a full string section. Oh, right! It's super deluxe now. It is gorgeous. Very rich tune. <laughs> Very rich tune. Yeah. yeah. 
the, the last time we spoke to you, of course, we discussed your love for Steely Dan, and, and we already knew that. And uh, you know, and how your music, you know, contains elements of the Dan, you know, that are very apparent. But uh, you know, they definitely have their own, you know, unique Monkey House DNA. And mm-hmm. this this album is is no different in regard to the Steely influence. But um, what did you bring to the table this time around that you know sets the new album left apart from Headquarters or even uh, True Winter? Yeah. Well, I think that. Um Obviously, yeah. There's a there's uh, my whole kind of harmonic and groove concept derives in large part from Steely Dan, uh, Steely Dan themselves, and then other stuff from from their era. Right. But as you say, I think that uh, anytime you you sort of set out to write something in a style that already exists, you end up bringing a whole bunch of stuff, uh, either deliberately or not, of your own to the table. It's kind of like the Beatles trying to sound like Buddy Holly. Well, they never right. really did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's kind of what they were going for. Yeah. Um, I, I think the difference, uh, the biggest difference with this set of Monkey House songs is that they were written uh, so close together with the sort of focused intent of, of making an album. Uh, I think in previous Monkey House albums, I've ended up with, you know, a song here, two songs there, and kind of cobbled them together um, and picked my favorites and ended up with some good sets of songs. But th- this is the first one to me that feels like there's a kind of... Um, common connective tissue between all all the stuff mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. It, it was really developed with intent um, from the ground up all or mostly all around the same time. Yeah. Uh, part of that is just necessity being the mother of invention and I knew that um, Alma Records was going to sign me mm-hmm. this time around and uh, they didn't want to um, make an album for two years. They wanted to get in there and do it when it was ready. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's nice to have deadlines. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I've got I've got a question for you, Don. You know, what you know, you closed probably on the Alma deal before the obviously before the album was produced and written that type of thing. How much yes. how much does just the advent of having a contract with you know, with Alma is, uh, you know, af- affects your effort. I mean, I mean, I know, I don't mean that it, it should or it shouldn't, but does it, you know, affect as to how, now that you have the, you know, the theoretical, su- the support for the marketing and that kind of stuff, does that affect an artist at all? I, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, I think anyone who tells you that it doesn't is lying either to you or themselves mm-hmm. or both, uh, because there there is a certain comfort level knowing that you're not going to have to uh, spend your own nickel on every last minute of studio time and mm-hmm. every last musician's fee and you know if, if you send the mastering back three times or something it's you know you're not <laughs> yeah you're not using your grocery money to do that <laughs> um, that's one thing um, also on another level it's a kind of uh, vote of confidence uh, you know the last record came out as an indie release and yeah. then got licensed by Alma, which was nice uh, because we wound up with major label distribution and, um, you know, serious radio tracking and, and yeah. all the kind of fixings that go along with um, being distributed. Um, but being signed actually to the label uh, is a whole other level of commitment from them. And it partially has to do with... Uh, 
people making a fuss over the last record, and of mm-hmm. course you guys were part of that too. But uh, you know, getting uh, positive reviews from people like um, Jay Graydon and Michael O'Martian and sure, uh, right. Rob Mounsey and the, yeah. the list goes on. I mean, people that uh, I was blown away to even have uh, right. aware of my music, much less uh, sort of you know yeah. taking the time to get in touch with me and mm-hmm. tell me how much they liked it. Yeah. Uh, and they helped spread the word. Uh, you know, there were literally sort of dozens of people kind of in the music core or in the, in the media who helped raise awareness to the point where the label thought, well, you know what, we can make more of a commitment this time. And and uh, that it was nice going in, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, we weren't going to have to uh, suspend production uh, halfway mm-hmm. through Right, while yeah. we raised more money yeah. or anything like that. Exactly. Good. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, we're going to be playing some tracks from the new album, Left, and uh, this will be the first time that they've been played publicly. And uh, so let's stop and check out the world premiere of the track, My Top Ten List, from the new Monkey House album, Left, on Inside Music Cast. <laughs> A top ten list by a big glass door Full color posters stuck on the wall With the top ten singles and they had them all I went in every day saying, hey, what's new? I dreamed someday I'd have a top ten too And sugar I do It goes you, water, oxygen, food, sleep, shelter Yes, and then all the rest of it Sun, single malt, double shot, triple fun. So in reverse order, like countdowns do. Sleep, food, oxygen, water, and you. My top ten list. My top ten list. Later, I was looking to escape some pain. Fly somewhere on a big ass plane. Had to think, got a link to a big. Play with the top ten spots just to get away A big number seven with the heavenly view The double book flat and that's where I met you My escape come true To review You, water, oxygen, food, sleep, shelter Yes and then all the rest of it Music, sun Single malt, double shot, triple fun So in reverse order like countdowns do Sleep, food, oxygen, water and you My top ten list My top ten list Kill a round of margaritas Hear the smash hits of the day Play. 
Dick Sun. Sing them all double shot, triple fun. So in reverse order like countdowns do. You, water, oxygen, food, sleep, shelter. Yes, and then all the rest of it. Music, sun. Sing them all double shot, triple fun. So in reverse order like countdowns do. Sleep, food, oxygen, water. Well, the al- album contains 11 tracks, and um, you know, and from what we know of, of Don Brightup is, uh, you know, uh, that m- these songs had to be the cream of the crop in order to end up on the project. But is uh, can you tell us how many additional songs, if any, um, had you written or produced that may have not made the cut for uh, Left? Well, there are no uh, fully produced, you know, mixed, mastered, mm-hmm. extra cuts lying around this time. But I can tell you that before I went into the final song selection process, I had, um, I think it was 33 songs uh, fully written, demoed up, and sort of, you know, stuff that I'd at least had a good Polaroid version of that I could make a judgment on. Uh, And it was nice to have that much stuff to choose from. Uh, and I knew going in that it, we, you know, last the last record was 15 tracks, and we actually recorded 16. And I thought uh, that we weren't going to go quite as heavy uh, this time. So I was thinking that it was going to be either 10, 11, or 12 this time. Yeah. yeah. I just got in there with a scythe and started swinging it around until <laughs> we were on, <laughs> there were only 11 tunes left. Well, um, you know, I know that you recorded this this album at the the Drive Shed in Toronto, and uh, it, it, um, you know the album sounds fantastic. So I wanted to give big props to your engineer uh, John Bailey. And you know, I'm curious though, that now that you're living out in L.A., did you even consider recording the album out there as opposed to taking it back to Toronto? Well, yeah, we talked about that. Um, the fact of the matter is that when you're uh, a record label uh, operating north of the border, part yeah. of your business model usually yeah. is some form of funding from the federal government or uh, oh. tax kickbacks for uh, doing a domestic recording. So um, for it to make sense financially for everybody, uh, the lion's share, sort of the core recording had to be done uh, in Canada, uh, which suited me fine because you know, there's nobody I'd rather make a record with than John Bailey. And uh, the other three guys who make up the... Uh, the main foursome of Monkey House all still live in Toronto, so sure. yeah, uh, makes sense. it made sense to do it there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, you wrote the songs, you arranged them, and, and you even penned the lyrics. And uh, you know, you enlisted uh, Peter Cardinale to uh, co-produce the album. And you know, you have this intimate relationship with your songs. So 
when you enlist Peter, what does he bring to the table that ultimately assists you in your creations? Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's see. That's that's a good question, uh, and I think it's different. Uh, I don't have a stock answer for it because sure. it's different with everybody. Um, Peter, uh, when I came into the music business in Toronto, Peter was one of the heavies. He's an absolutely world-class uh, bass player and mm-hmm. arranger. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I knew about him long before he knew about me. You know, he'd done stuff for Motown and on and on. Some years back, he decided, sort of at the peak of his playing career, he decided to form this label, which, you know, is that real rarity of a of a record label that, that puts music ahead of everything else. And so I knew about that, and, you know, over the years was aware of stuff that he was recording, uh, particularly in the jazz realm, that just sounded so great um, mm-hmm. that that I knew that on a sonic level I could trust Peter to have great ears and make great decisions as far as uh, mixing, editing, um, kind yeah. of contributing to arrangements, all that stuff. So he's on a very short list of people that I would, as I said to him, if I if I leave you in a studio alone with my tunes, it's like you're babysitting my kids. So, <laughs> you know, I really trust you. Monkey House, you know, it's been around since, I think it was like 1992 when you guys actually formed. Is that right? 92, yeah. yeah. Well, Back you know. Steely Dan wasn't doing anything, and I thought, well, <laughs> someone's got to write some pop songs with too many chords. <laughs> Might well, as well be me. Well, your, your debut album, True Winter, I think didn't come out until about 2000. But uh, so th- thinking back to the. No, that's the second album, my friend. The first album is Welcome to the Club, which did come out in 92. Oh, oh you know, I didn't even know about that one. Yeah. Why don't I know about that one? Yeah, what's the deal here? <laughs> what's the dealio? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all right, thinking back to the steps of progression the band has taken, you know, you probably, I'm sure that back in 92, you probably never assumed that you'd eventually, you know, create these incredible albums and have guys like Jay Graydon and Drew uh-huh, Zing and, yeah. you know, Michael Linhart and Elliot Randall as guests and, I mean, just tell us about that progression of the band, and, and uh, you know, it's something you've got to be extremely proud of. I am super proud of it. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the whole progression, uh, and in particular, this new record. I, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind it's it's the best thing I've done. Um, as far as dreaming big and and thinking you might one day be working with your heroes, I mean, we all think about that kind of thing. Um yeah. I'm sure it didn't feel that uh, realistic back when, I mean, what was I doing in the early 90s? Probably writing jingles and playing weddings and right. whatever else to sort of uh, make the rent. But I had this little uh, sort of side drawer of of songs that um, I, I couldn't picture handing off to people as potential covers. I was kind of jealously guarding them for a rainy day for myself and finally, there were enough of them that it, it looked like it would it should or would be an album. Um, and we went in and did that. And, you know, um, it was, you know, symptomatic of the time and the budget that uh, there were there was some drum programming involved. There was some bass programming involved. And it was probably a little more keyboard than guitar heavy yeah. uh, back then. Sure. But the point all the way along was to just keep the songwriting bar high. I mean... 
my attitude was I wasn't competing with um, sort of people around me. I was trying to compete with, and this sounds grandiose, but this is how you have to think, I think, is uh, I was competing with Paul Simon and James Taylor and mm-hmm. Michael McDonald and Steely Dan and Chicago and all those other bands that, that I considered formative. So um, I wasn't thinking, is this song better than my last song? I was thinking... Um, you know, would would Paul Simon think this is a piece of crap, <laughs> or would he think it was <laughs> sure, not yeah, so bad? Right. You know, so I, I think that uh, just keeping the bar high over the years enabled me to, in good conscience, toss aside some pretty good songs and wait for the really good songs, uh, and that explains to some extent why there were such big gaps between albums because I was just waiting for there to be a set of songs that I was really uh, happy with. Yeah. That would seem to be a luxury, in my opinion, for a lot of musicians to to be able to wait until one of their projects, uh, until they get the right number of quality songs. That literally could take years sometimes for some people. And, and you know, you've, uh, you're, you're accomplished with the other areas of music that you're touching, you know, with the, the side work and the stuff that's, that's relatively accomplished also. But a lot of guys that can't do that, they're, that's, you know, I, I sometimes feel that that's why they produce or are forced to produce albums that might even have demo sounding, you know, tracks on it because they just can't develop it, you know? Um, yeah, well, it's it's you're always kind of uh, on the line between what somebody's asking you to do and on what kind of schedule yeah, and, uh, right. you know, what you have time for as well. Because, you know, as Monkey House was sort of developing, I was conducting an entire sort of other musical career. Of course. Outside of that, that really had nothing to do with that project, mm-hmm. with, with TV and arranging and touring with people and all the rest of it. Um, so it was nice to be busy doing all that stuff, uh, but by the same token, uh, sometimes it would be years before Monkey House got to the back of the top of the pile right? and and a record got made. You know, uh, started in 92, I, sharp, I should be on my 10th album by now. Not <laughs> <fifth>. <laughs> well, your core band is Mark Kelso on drums, you know, Justin Ebbett on, on guitars, Pat Kilbright on, on bass. They're, uh, they're, they're your main guys. And can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how these guys get involved in regards to the development of, of this new project? Yeah, let's talk about my homies. <laughs> uh, well, Mark, I've known the longest. Uh, he and I, I think Mark was probably a teenager when I first met him. We were both playing in shows up at uh, a theme park north of Toronto. <laughs> it was my summer job in university, and uh, we immediately bonded over oh, a whole bunch of music, Steely Dan, uh, Yellow Jackets, Pat Metheny, yeah. uh, a lot of stuff that was going on at the time, and sort of uh, had that kind of instant, oh, I've met a, a like-minded individual. And, uh, you know, I started using Mark on sessions almost as soon as I was demoing my own stuff. When I was still at uh, Berkeley, I think, I was already in the studio with him on occasion. Yeah. And... uh we just kept in touch over the years, and he's, uh, I don't think he played on the first Monkey House record, uh, but he was definitely on the second one. And, uh, you know, it, it, he's almost like uh, on the level of uh, a brother with me now, where I don't even 
I don't have to explain anything. I just know right. that he has the same taste I have. Yeah. I don't have to, you know, dictate any decisions to him. He's going to make great decisions and, and bring his own sort of legendary heaviness to to these sessions. Uh, it's just that kind of shorthand you get when you, you've known somebody uh, for decades. Right, right. Uh, and then... Um, Pat Kilbride, uh, the bass player, haven't known as long, although I guess it's uh, quite a while now. And uh, he and I have been in and out of uh, several different musical situations over the years. And he's he's a bit like the uh, the analog of Mark in the studio in that he plays every musical style with total authority. <laughs> and he's got chops to burn, but he's not sort of a hey, look at my chops kind of guy. He's yeah. he's absolutely there to serve the song uh, and is in equal measure a great uh, ear guy and a ridiculous reading guy. Uh, you know, the first time I rehearsed with him, I had done a, a bunch of charts for this band I was working with in the 90s and uh, came in and we ran the stuff down the next day and he was playing it on the first run through better than I was and I had written it the night before. <laughs> I hate guys like that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's great. And uh, uh, Mark and Pat are both on the faculty uh, at Humber College, which has sort of the uh, the coolest uh, jazz contemporary music program okay. uh, in that part of Canada. Yeah. And then uh, Justin Abaddon, who was in a really fantastic R&B band called Jack Soul, um, and it plays on everyone's record uh, up in the Northeast. Um, he, he was sort of part of the guitar core on the last record, and it, I just, one of the decisions I made before we even got in there and started making this record was that I would like to have uh, a core four-piece band at the heart of this on all the tracks. Sure. Uh, and uh, Justin was the guy I thought um, always brought something unexpected or creative or something I wouldn't have notated and handed to him mm-hmm. uh, every time I used him. Uh, he's on a good chunk of headquarters, but not the whole record. And uh, I think mm-hmm. he earned his way into the uh, the driver's seat for this one. Yeah, nice. That's a great band. It- Certainly talented, and in the, in, in the, the the heart of everything you guys have done sounds so good. And of course, you, you had quite a few guests on the album as well. And, and I want to start with Jay Graydon, which of course is a is a Steely Dan alumni and a, and a, and a past Inside Music Cast guest. And you know he co-wrote and laid down the guitar solo on the track uh, "Good to Live." And um, and I'm I'm assuming uh, I'm, I'm sure that he. He probably cut this independently on his own, right? He he didn't come to any of the sessions there with you in uh, in in your area in Toronto, right? Yeah, no, he recorded that at his place here in L.A. Well, yeah. I guess my question for that is: um, uh, Do you find it to be? Were you on Were you on set when he recorded it, or were you remote, or, or where, where were you? No, I actually wasn't even physically in town uh, <laughs> when he recorded it. Right. Um, I'll I'll just give you a little bit of background. Uh, well, first of all, the. Uh, the my introduction to Jay was brokered by your friend and mine, Brian Pearson. That's right. That's right. Uh, who laid my last album on Jay even before I moved out here, and yep. uh, Jay had sort of made the decision. Oh well, I'd like to work with this guy if he ever gets out here. And as yeah. it happens, within six months I was, and uh, we've written a whole raft of stuff since then, and uh, 
you know, I'm working with them on, on a regular basis. In fact, I'm going over tomorrow night. Um, so that's, you know, that's been kind of a dream come true. And uh, I've tried not to be too much of a, a music nerd, although the first time I went over to his place, I I said, uh, Jay, before we do anything, you have to show me the guitar you played on Peg. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so can I touch I it, please? I made him open his guitar closet and get that guitar out, and I said, okay, now we can work. <laughs> um, <laughs> Holy grail. That's the pass. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and Good to Live, uh, which is a song he co-wrote for the Monkey House album, uh, we really batted that back and forth quite a few times before it got uh, done. And uh, so by the time it was ready for a guitar overdub, uh, Jay knew it quite well. I mean, we we sort of raised this thing from the ground up uh, together, back and forth. And I had the feeling he already had some I- idea of the shape of mm-hmm. what he wanted to do in that section. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, as you guys know, no one needs to hold Jay Graydon's hand in the studio. Uh, no, and so really. I, I just, you know, gave it to him and said, do your thing and, and, uh, just, uh, kind of bit my nails until finally I got some, some audio from him. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he's just, he really is the world's nicest guy and he's all about music. Yeah. And he's a guy that I always say you could really make an argument for, for him being one of the most influential, uh, record producers of his era. Yeah, true. Um, I don't think he gets that, you know, out, outside of, uh, us music nerds, he maybe doesn't get that kind of, uh, acknowledgement, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he took a lot of, um, kind of jazz or jazz-related artists and put them on the map and made them household names. Absolutely. And that yeah. was all by sheer force of will and just uh, having an idea how to uh, dovetail, like, for example, Al Jarreau's thing with a more um, funky, mainstream mm-hmm. approach. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, the, you know, the records he was making in the... Uh, in the eighties are among the most influential yep. uh, ones in my collection from a harmonic standpoint, from a groove standpoint, from a sonic standpoint, uh, even from the, uh, the standpoint of, of taking a sort of a standard studio rhythm section and then layering stuff up until it feels, uh, mm-hmm. really complete. Yep. You know, there's, those albums are very tasteful, but they're also very thick with really uh, juicy, great activity. Like there's no there's no wasted space there. There's always some yeah. cool event that draws your ear. Uh, so that's you know along with uh, the Dan and and some other contemporary acts, those, those Graydon records uh, sort of were a clinic for me in in how to uh, <laughs> arrange, record, and mix. No doubt. Well, speaking of that track, Good to Live, uh, I really love that, uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a New Orleans style, almost preservation hall kind of mm-hmm. uh, horn you know, riff that you there, did there at the end of the piece. It was really cool. It breaks down, yeah. It's very nice. Yeah, one. well, that's exactly what I would call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, we did all the horns, yeah. all the section stuff uh, in one day for this uh, album, which was fairly punishing for a few of the guys. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and that was one of the last tunes we cut, and I said... Uh, I just had a two-bar vamp written at the end, and I knew in advance I was going to have them all just go nuts and and sound 
like a Dixieland band. Yeah. And then gradually I was going to take the rhythm section out of it, and so the song would end with just the six horns. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically having a bar fight. <laughs> that was pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, another Steely Dan alumni, Drew Zing, and also another Inside Music cast past guest, he provided uh, guitars on on your track. You know, what exactly is it that you do all day? And it's a track yeah. that you wrote with your brother, I believe. And um, uh, Drew was a guest on your Headquarters album also, by the way. And and uh, aside from his Steely Dan work and uh, – what is it about Drew's touch that uh, that made you invite him to uh, to participate in this particular track? Well, I think uh, I, like a lot of other people, uh, first became aware of him uh, when he did the New York Rock and Soul Review. Yeah, right. In the '90s, with uh, with Steely Dan and, and related people, including Bob Skaggs and and Michael McDonald and Phoebe Snow, mm-hmm. and uh, I immediately thought. Well, this is definitely a guy who gets that style. Like, he kind of sounded like Luke. He kind of sounded like uh, Larry Carlton. Mm-hmm. You know, at times he sounded bluesier than either of those guys. Uh, but always, to me, the, the thing that stuck, stuck out was how amazing he was playing over changes. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're playing over a, a Steely Dan tune, it's always kind of deceptive because the groove feels so good. But if you just start, you know, bobbing your head and not concentrating, mm-hmm. you're going to miss that 2-4 bar. Or you're going to miss that couple of beats where it slips outside the key and you're going to sound like an idiot if you don't, <laughs> yeah. you know, catch something good at that spot. Right. I mean, he's just a guy you can't, you can't stump him harmonically. He will take whatever you throw at him and, uh, and be inventive and make these... Uh, lines that just sound inevitable and and singable and mm-hmm. and logical you know yes he did great work that song uh started as more of a an almost british i guess you'd say power power pop kind of thing yeah i i had to work hard to kind of get it into the monkey house fold and have that kind of content in it mm-hmm. uh, and that that vamp that starts it off and then also is the tag was sort of the glue that convinced me it could be uh, a Monkey House song. And uh, yeah. if, if you sort of uh, concentrate in, in the last, you know, 60 to 90 seconds of that tune, the stuff Drew is playing over the tag as it just kind of goes off into the sunset yeah. is so wicked. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, there are about three things there that are in my top 10 moments on the whole record. Wow. You know, another track from the album that uh, Eddie and I totally dig is the last track on the album, track 11, and it's titled The Art of Starting Over. So let's take another break and check this one out. Another world premiere from Don Brightup and Monkey House on Inside Music Cast. to imagine 
Eddie and I were talking about the the album before we got started, and and I'm I'm such a fan of everything. It's one it's one of those albums where you know you listen to it, you hear a track, and you think I'd absolutely love that song. It, 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 this this is my favorite, and you hit the next song, and it's like, oh wait, wait, wait a second. There's stuff about this I love that's even better, and then <laughs> and it just <laughs> keeps it just keeps. Per- I love to hear that. Yeah, it, I mean, you know what. Uh, you mentioned my brother, who I wrote uh, yeah. that song with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our whole thing growing up was we we would uh, uh, love those albums back in the day that just had no weak tracks. Right. Yep. You know, whether it was a Steely Dan album or Band on the Run or Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or those uh, Stevie Wonder albums from that era. I mean, it just kind of goes from track to track and go, oh, I love this yeah. one too. Yeah, absolutely. It just keeps yeah. going. And then another guest you brought in uh, was Elliot Randall uh, to play uh, a track on uh, – I think it was on the track It Works For Me. And, uh, you know, I, I love this song and it's so tight. You know, the horn arrangements and performances are, are really insane and the cool chord changes on the vocal harmonies and, and are, are nice. And then – and of course, there's and there's Elliot's uh, – I think he's got like an eight-bar guitar solo and it's it's just, you know, really tasty. And, you know, first, how difficult – was it to nab Elliot for this track? And I guess similar to my question about Jay, did you? Did, I'm sure he probably uh, um, tracked this wherever he was, right? I'm not sure. He he lives in the UK, is that right? Or where? Yeah, he lives in London. Yeah, yeah or okay. I guess outside of London. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So he he recorded it over there. Although the day he was tracking, we were on the phone for large chunks of it, so okay, uh, it didn't feel completely remote, right? Um, right. But of course. Uh, you know, one of the big musical epiphanies in my life was the first time I heard Reeling in the Years. Uh, I remember pulling my bike over to the side of the road and just saying, what the hell is this? I need to hear this. And, uh, you know, so my admiration for him goes back uh, a long, long way. And um, I knew he was in the U.K. and really wasn't part of the scene out here on the West Coast anymore, so I, I... had always considered it kind of a very remote possibility that I would ever work with him. But when I reached out to him, uh, it went quite quickly. Uh, and the moment he heard the track, which at the time I think was just my, uh, my demo of it, uh, he really flipped out about the song and had great things to say about it. He's comparing it to Steely Dan and yeah, all this great stuff. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of uh, if you were going to peg it to something in the Steely Dan catalog, it's probably in the my old school uh, realm. Yeah, where absolutely. It's uh, it, it's kind of a vampy R and B thing, basically. But there's some some little uh, unexpected chords that pop up in the in the middle of it as mm-hmm. it goes along. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just one of those things where. I, when I was thinking, well, what song would I have him play on out of the 11 that I had uh, picked, uh, that seemed like the obvious one. I just knew he would know exactly what to do with it, Yeah, which he did. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as much as we've have, have talked about the Steely Dan influence, and of course a lot of these players were uh, are Steely Dan alumni, there's, there's a track on the album called Maybe None of This Would Have Happened. And I got to tell you that there's, this kind of leaves the Steely Dan realm for me. And when I heard it, it grabbed me like a Ben Fold style ballad, and I'm not sure if that's what you were going for. But when I heard that and heard you know the way you attack the vocals, and the, and the way you know you worked the piano on that one, um, it, it just really had sort of a, a Ben Fold sort of vibe to it. And is, is that a fair assessment? Is that it? Absolutely, is a fair assessment. Okay. I mean, uh, out of any artist that's happened sort of in the last 
I don't know, 20 years, uh, Ben Folds, to me, seems the most consistently uh, inventive, yeah. just full of beans, full of new songs, full of yeah. cool stuff at all times. And, uh, yeah, that piano intro and the, and the general feel of it um, is definitely in his wheelhouse. I, I always think that Ben's chord changes remind me of... Uh, Todd Rundgren. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and I would yeah. say that there's a little bit of Todd in that song as well. Yeah, that's uh, true. And the fact that it was in that Rundgren, Ben Folds, maybe even Elton John yep. uh, territory was part of what made me think maybe it wasn't a song to put the horn section on, mm-hmm. that it would be more like hmm. smaller, more intimate, and um, make more hay from the thickness of the vocals and that's why i had david blamars do the uh the backups on that one and and full disclosure uh you know uh, i like what i did vocally on it but uh that's partially because i was imitating mark jordan's phrasing right because uh, he's the first one who demoed it vocally yeah. Interesting, yeah did he co-write that song with you he co-wrote it with me yeah uh it's mark and i are also doing a lot of work together these days on on uh for a bunch of different reasons, for three different projects at the moment. Um, but it's always nice when you write with him because at some point in the process, you'll end up with a demo of him singing the song, uh, and you can sort of go to school on that and uh, and pick all his tasty, uh, yeah. kind of unexpected, inventive little vocal leaps and make them your own. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, really. But I, I'd feel bad taking credit for all of it because he's <laughs> just such a an original uh, vocalist. Absolutely. Well, one more yeah. instrumentalist that you invited for the project, and of course, he's he's also tied with Stevie Dan, and, and uh, it's it's Michael uh, Linhart, and um, you invited him to lay down the, the trumpet lead and the solo on the track, It's Already Dark in New York. Um, did you have this charted? Did he come, uh, did he uh, contribute to, to this piece, or did he... Uh, just improvise a solo? How did that No, happen? everything he plays on there is improvised. Well, and okay. um, He's so good. <laughs> speaking, it's, it's all great. And speaking uh, of being able to navigate through crazy changes, uh, that's probably yeah. the toughest song on the album harmonically, especially <laughs> that part at the yeah. end where it double times and, and yes. Michael just, yeah. you know, doesn't make a bad choice yeah. anywhere in, in what he sent me. Uh, you know, and I and I had multiple takes of uh, parts of it, and the, the toughest part was just picking which version to use. But the idea of having him on it, you know, apart from, uh, you know, I've worked with him uh, on our Brighter Brothers shows uh, many, many times in, in New York now, but because the lyric centers around somebody who's on the West Coast and is uh, homesick for the East Coast, uh, and the idea of uh, jazz in New York City... Uh, coming up, I mean, Mike's a, a born and bred New Yorker, and his dad was a jazz musician, and it just felt like, okay, he's got to go on that track. It just makes <laughs> thematic it was sense. Right. Yeah, that's cool. You've already uh, commented on this, but that section at the end where you said it goes into double time is such a cool way to end that track. Uh, and and of course, what Linhard adds to it, you know, is 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 amazing. But also, your the backing vocalists on that are just it's just really slick and gorgeous, and uh, just I loved what you did there at the end of that track. Yeah, I love that little uh, female vocal hook that, yep. that comes up a few times in, in the end. That yep. was uh, kind of, I think that might have been written uh, on the day that I had Lucy Woodward in the studio oh, yeah. um, doing all the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. 
um, that my idea for the end of that was, you know, it sort of gets to the end of the last chorus, and you think, okay, well, now it just it's going to vamp out, right? Because that's just what seems like it should happen. And then I thought, well, what would my heroes do? They wouldn't just vamp out because it seemed like that's the thing to do. They would try to keep entertaining you. Um, and so I kind of, uh, in my head, went from the inner monologue that constitutes most of the song and thought, well, what is this uh, cool kind of downtown jazz that he's remembering in his head? Could we hear some of that? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did kind of a variation on, on the vamp and, and took it to some uh, odd places yeah. uh, harmonically. And you get the sense almost of a big band horn section yeah. um, on yeah. the outro vamp. And it goes on for for a while. I just liked it so much I didn't want to fade it. And probably it's probably two minutes of it or something yeah. on there. And, and Michael, as you heard, took the uh, took the Harmon mute out of the trumpet and then just started. Yeah. I'm not sure whether he had a plunger or whether he was palm muting it, but it's some really <laughs> uh, sassy, uh, yeah, right. bluesy trumpet playing. Well, to your point there a second ago, it goes on for a little bit, and it does fade, but it fades really slowly. And I just want to tell anybody who's going to listen to the track to make sure you put headphones on or something where you can hear it all the way to the, end. To the, to the fade out, because yes. there's some really cool playing going on in that, in that part where it's fading. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's yeah. A good, I think it's a good headphone album. Yeah, uh, definitely. And that's one of the songs, and there, were, there, was, uh, there might have been three where we thought about, should we forget about fading and just let it go? Fully volume right to the end, where right. we all just kind of quit. Uh, but in the end, my uh, my sense of what would be elegant uh, wouldn't wouldn't stand for just sort of a cold ending like that. So yeah. I ended up uh, using fades anyway. But um, you know, always I was trying to uh, get as much of the goodies in uh, <laughs> in earshot before the fade actually uh, happened, because I'm aware, uh, as you are in these days, that that people are going to be listening to this stuff sometimes with a noise floor involved, whether it's their car or people talking or, you know, so once it gets below a certain decibel level, you have to assume only the real uh, freakazoids with their closed headphones on are actually going to be hearing what's there. I guess that's you're describing me. Uh, Yes, uh, that was you. (laughs) I think we should change the freakazoid. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned music nerds a little while ago. I think maybe we should change like the tagline to inside inside music cast, yes. the, the place where nerds gather or something. That's you know, right. something like yeah, that. Come one, like come all if you're a nerd. <laughs> hey, well, you music cuckoo clocks <laughs> join. Well, hey guys, let's take uh, one more break and check out this track featuring Michael Lenhart on trumpet. And this, of course, is already dark in New York from our guest today, Don Brightup, and his band Monkey House on Inside Music Cast. Resort 
You know, you mentioned Lucy Woodward, and uh, you know, it's funny, Rick and I, uh, um, back in geez, a couple of years ago, we, we she opened for Snarky Puppy, and uh, oh my God, what a voice! We we were just like looking at each other, like, is this real? You know, tell us how. Um, she has how, a gorgeous how, voice. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Um, how did you connect with her? And uh, well, that's. Uh, I mean, I knew about her through the Snarky Puppy uh, family dinner record, okay. mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. Right. as well. But because um, Snarky's based in Brooklyn, and and anyone else uh, who I knew that knew her was also New York based. I just figured she was on the East Coast. Um, what happened was we were getting down to the wire as far as uh, tracking days that we had left, and I wanted to do the, uh, the female backup vocals, and I thought all the way along that I'd be using Julie again. Uh, she made such a great contribution to the last album, but as it turned out, she was uh, about to have a baby okay. right, uh, when mm-hmm. we got around to yeah. doing backup vocals. Uh, so I was in touch with Henry Hay, uh, who just finished actually making Lucy's new record, which is out, I think, in July, um, and asked him for suggestions for female singers out in my neck of the woods here. And he suggested Lucy, and I said, oh, well, is she going to be out here for some reason? And he said, yeah, she lives there. So I oh, was wow. pleasantly surprised <laughs> to find that out, and uh, within uh, very short order had booked her. And... To nobody's surprise, least of all you guys, because you've heard her live, uh, she was just so versatile and so professional and so cool and yeah. accurate and yeah. fun and musical and all the rest of it. I mean, it, it just was like mm-hmm. twice as easy <laughs> as it should have been because yeah. there were, you know, there were some tricky notes in there, and uh, she's that rare vocalist who can uh, look at a chart and uh, not be stymied by it, wow. actually be helped by it. So, I mean, you know, you hear her pop in and out at uh, Carefully Chosen Moments and a whole bunch of these tunes, yeah. and uh, just every time every time she's about to sing, I always go, oh, this is this part's good. Yeah. <laughs> Great choice. And uh, yeah. we've got, we've got uh, one more track we want to talk about. We're about to rack up, wrap up here, but it's the track, I think, probably before the interview I, I mentioned to you, and, and Eddie and I both... Uh, completely love this one and it's the very last track in the album called the art of starting over and uh you know that we we talked about uh michael linhart's uh trumpet parts on it's already dark in new york but but not that it's a competition but the trumpet solo on this is just is just gorgeous um and it, there's a, there's a couple of them too and and uh not to mention the chord progressions and the and the subtle orchestrations and uh and you know the the space that's in this track it, it's so uh, it's so wide open and it's used so well there's so much going on with the solos layered, and, you know yeah. the orchestration and you know pat gilbride's cool bass groove there and it's it's just so clean and tangible and just a great piece of work oh thanks man I, I mean, that's probably out of any track on the album. Took the that was the most heavy lifting in terms of mixing, and yeah. as you say, a lot of it had to do with space. A yeah. lot of it was what to remove at at what moment right, to right. kind of clear the decks for some other, you know, like a bass fill or or a string line or or something to just have its moment. Um, part of the reason it's got such a nice uh, kind of deliberate flow to it is that. Right at the last minute before we tracked it, I slowed the tempo down pretty substantially. Oh yeah, interesting. What was it before? Um, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like a different feel. It was the right. feel that you hear, but 
who knows what percentage faster. Yeah. It just sort of, you know, the tempo I wrote it at is not the tempo you hear okay. <laughs> on the album. But as soon as I started playing it more slowly, I thought, uh, okay, now it's arrived. Yeah, now I'm yeah. sure that it should be there. Yeah, because I can't imagine um, it being any faster. Right. <laughs> it just feels so good. No, well, that's good. That means it ended up in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and one thing that, here's another little uh, uh, side story that has to do with being on a bigger label that has major label distribution and real budgets and stuff. Um, we had finished that tune and we had already tracked the horn section on it. Uh, and I thought from an arranging standpoint, I had pretty much filled in all the holes. And then, uh, Peter Cardinelli from Alma was, uh, on his way over to the Czech Republic to re record the, um, the Prague Philharmonic on somebody uh, else's record. Okay. And I'm going to say maybe two days before he got on the plane to do that, uh, he got in touch with me and said, Hey, if there's, maybe one song on the Monkey House album that you want to do a string chart for. Wow. Uh, I think I could piggyback it on the back of <laughs> one of our days over in, Czech, in the Czech Republic. And uh, I, I said, of course. Wow. You know, so I, I <laughs> didn't sleep much the next two days. But, wow, that's amazing. Uh, and I didn't write for the full orchestra. It was just the strings. But uh, it was an interesting challenge because, like I said, I, I thought I had sort of... Uh, hit all the marks that needed to be hit in terms of answer lines and counterpoint and, and background padding and, and all that stuff. So right. the question was what to do with the strings, and it sort of uh, backed me into some interesting corners. So the interplay between the, the string section and then the six horns is pretty interesting at yeah. times. They're they're overlapping. Sometimes they're doing versions of the same thing. Yeah, they are, yeah. But a lot of times they're kind of fighting it out in different registers and stuff. Yeah. It's very cool. The orchestration is – it's amazing, Don. I mean, you know, the, when we listened to it just before the interview, I looked at him once the the, the strings start coming up and, and, and growing and then diminishing. And, of course, the horns come in and they start doubling up. I'm like, holy cow, they're playing the same part. It just added search, uh, just a beautiful layering of – of you, you don't want to say it's it's the same thing, but they brought – both instrumentations brought so there's, much there's into the richness. There's a lot of intrigue. Of <clears throat> there's a lot of intrigue. Yeah. You know, it's 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 ear candy. It's just sit back there and it's yeah, it's it's very it's cool. Buttery. It's it's butter. <laughs> it's like butter. <laughs> it's butter, baby. It's, it's butter. butter. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, it's it's interesting when when you have a song like that 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 is sort of built on what's really a, a one bar uh, repeating mm-hmm. groove. I mean, there's a lot of variation in it once you get into the chorus and stuff, but really, sort of a the core of it, the spine of it, is just that that uh, A minor vamp that you hear a lot of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the challenge was to sort of um, never make that the same. Always have some new yeah. little upper layer on it uh, that kept it fresh. Mm-hmm. Very well that's, done. That's the way I thought of it. Very well done. Very nice. Well, we're about to close oh, here. Oh, do go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about to close this out, but um, there's a couple of little minor questions here I want to ask. And one is um, the album title, Left. And, and what it, I was trying to think of what this referred to, and I wondered if it had to do anything with your political affiliation. No, no, or? just that he left, <laughs> well, he left Toronto. <laughs> he left Toronto. He left Toronto. Yeah, <laughs> see, that's the yeah, well, You know what? Um, <laughs> I love the fact that it's open to interpretation. But anyone who's familiar with my Facebook feed has no doubt that it has to do with my politics, <laughs> right. among other things. But the, the, you know, the other idea was uh, I was moving to the left coast, 
That's exactly right. right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and then someone did make that comment that uh, hey, left. That's what you did. <laughs> that's what you did. You know? you left. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I went through different uh, stages with with the title, thinking it meant different things. Like um, some of the tunes started with bass and drum grooves, and I thought, okay, that's left hand if you're a piano player. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. another uh, way to think of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess left, uh, if you're French, the gauche, you know, it's gauche, sort of the, yeah. uh, it's the other perspective. It's the different way of looking yeah. at something. And that's why I chose that uh, image for the front cover because it, you got to look at it twice to even know what it is. That it's this painting from directly above a bunch of people mm-hmm. walking down a city street. Sure. Uh, so I was hoping to. Um, it was a bit of a mission state from, statement for me. I wanted to uh, uh, take some of the ideas and feels and things I'd done before, but just uh, see them out of the corner of my eye, or or from above, or um, just make different choices with them this time. Yeah, well, nice art direction. It's a beautiful. Well, cover. you mentioned the art. Who designed that? Who designed the cover? Well, I know, it's, since I moved out to LA, I have a great friend out here named Richard Greenberg, um, who I actually met because he was involved in the uh, film and TV business. But his cousin, uh, Susan Thacker, is the artist who did that cover, and she's just a wonderful painter. I mean, okay. hopefully people will take the time, if they like that cover, to... Uh, go and check out some more of her stuff. She has a whole series of paintings that have that uh, odd, straight-down kind of perspective. Um, But the minute I saw that image, and and that's going back years now, I just sort of had that in my back pocket and got in touch with her and said, hey, this isn't happening for a while, but would you be into uh, uh, licensing us this image for an album cover? And uh, and I never, in, in the couple of intervening years saw anything that spoke to me quite as loud as a, huh. as a visual so it, it uh, ended up being the cover yeah, yeah very very nice. nice choice well the uh the monkey house album left is due out uh june 3rd here in the states um i know it's going to be available on cd and of course a download any any plans for vinyl for those vinyl freaks out there well we have talked about vinyl um Given the length of the record, it would have to be double vinyl because uh, we're push, pushing an hour. Okay, yeah. And you don't get uh, high fidelity out of vinyl if you try to sure. put a half hour yeah. on each side. Eight, That's why the Steely Dan records only had seven songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we have talked about vinyl, although it's nothing I could put a date to sure. uh, right now. But uh, physical CDs will be uh, on the street. Um, yeah. June third. Yep. So I guess any uh, any music you put into uh, this interview uh, right. is going to be a world premiere. So there, there you I go. got for <laughs> that music cast loyalty. <laughs> and don't forget Brian Pearson; he'll want that on eight track. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Brian, if you're listening, right. it's coming to you. It's coming to he you. He likes Brian. that little chunking noise every twelve minutes in <laughs> yeah. the middle of a song. He'll, he loves going around and around. Okay, all right, <laughs> that's for Brian. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, hey, Don, thanks so much for uh, thank you for for joining us uh, and and explaining uh, all there is to know about this new Monkey House album. Because Eddie and I have been fortunate to hear it here in advance, and and we're here to tell you it's a great album, and uh, everybody yes. should definitely check this out. So definitely. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, it's um, your uh, level of awareness raising uh, is always 
uh, amazing. And uh, I, I know for a fact that a lot of people discovered the last record uh, because of the interview we did and, and sort of the, the fallout from that. So yeah. thanks a million times over. Yeah, no and thank you. Uh, thank you. We, I, I just noticed today I, I looked at the credits in the album you know, several times and I just glossed over it. But I just realized today that uh, you put Eddie and, and BP and I in there. So <laughs> thanks thanks a lot. We feel special. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> Shout out to the music crazy. Cool. <laughs> All right. Don, take care. And uh, and I hope you're, uh, you can get over this little bit of laryngitis you've got. No doubt. Yeah, anyone who knows my voice knows I was down about a fourth today. But... <laughs> Sounds sexy, man. Sounds sexy. <laughs> my, my inner Barry White. That's right. Take care. Thanks man. again, guys. Take All right. Care. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Special thanks to Don Brida for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brida for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. To each his own, truer words were never spoken. I roam the speech on the island of the blind. You don't